I love the Christmas season. I don't always love everything that goes with the Christmas season, but I love the Christmas season. We put up Christmas tree this week, and once we got it up, we always put up a, a, a big one in our sunroom. And, uh, you know, you kind of, I don't know about you, maybe I'm the only one that does this, but I, I kind of click back about 40-something years to when I was a kid. And, you know, I just kind of, I let myself be a kid for a little while. Just We, we just sat and watched the tree sparkle and, and everything. And I, I just, when we sing those old Christmas carols, those hymns, that I grew up with, I, I can close my eyes as, and, and I know the words. They just come from somewhere. We learn them as children. I love that. I just think this is an awesome season of the year. This, you know, We worship a God who loved us enough to leave heaven. He needs nothing, and yet He wants relationship with us. And He was willing to leave heaven to become one of us. And this morning, we're going to talk about the place that He came to. I've kind of entitled this sermon, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And Jim and I, one of the things I shared with Jim when we first began to talk about worship and different things is I said, you know what, I believe the Holy Spirit guides the pastor on what he should preach. And I believe the person that leads the worship, the worship leader, the Holy Spirit will lead him or her to what they should do. And so I don't tell him what to sing. I just don't think that's my job. He prays and the Lord leads him and it's amazing how God just leads. I believe that's the Holy Spirit. He's seamless. And if we'll just listen to him, he'll show us what to do. You know, you can ask any kid that's ever been to Sunday school a few times what the significance of Bethlehem is. I mean, in fact, I can probably ask anybody in here what the significance of Bethlehem is. And to a person, you will probably say, well, that's where Jesus was born. And that's exactly right. It is, without a doubt, probably the most significant little town in the world. Probably the most famous town in the world. I don't know that it's the, the most visited, but you would be amazed at how many people visit Bethlehem in a year's time. It would boggle your mind. They come by the hundreds of thousands every year to this little town. And it's, it's located just five miles south of Jerusalem. You, you really... You kind of, you leave Jerusalem and you wind around and up a hill and down a hill. The cities in, in that part of the world, and, and especially in Israel, for the most part, are built on hilltops. Uh, Jerusalem is, is built in the mountains, and it's built, I think, on, on seven hills or five hills. Uh, they call them mountains. But uh, that pilgrimage, uh, that people come from all over the world to visit Jerusalem and to visit Bethlehem and, and to see the place where Jesus was born. And folks, it's a real place. It's, you know, it, it's easy if you grow up and you learn the stories and, and you read Scripture and you watch the, the, the Christmas pageants and, and, and uh, the Christmas plays. Man, I, I was a perennial shepherd. I never, I never got very much farther. Were there, were there any people in here that got to be the, one of the kings? Come on now, this is, this, okay. Jim did. I, I, I remember Jim. He was a good-looking king. And I don't mean just as an adult. I mean as a kid. Do we have a Mary and Joseph? I, man, I wanted to play Joseph. Never made it. I was just a shepherd. But, you know, we, we learn those stories. And Bethlehem becomes somewhat to us like Camelot. It's a fairy tale place. It, it's a dream place. But, folks, I want to tell you, Bethlehem is a real place. It's a spot on the planet. And pilgrims have been going to Bethlehem for literally 2,000 years. Probably the, the most famous one was Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena. And Helena went in 326 A.D. And she went to the Holy Land to locate. She'd become a Christian. And she felt God was calling her to go to the Holy Land and locate the places that she had heard about as the gospel was shared with her. And so she went to Jerusalem and she went to different places. But one of the places that she went was Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, I mean, this is 300 or so years after the fact, she began to ask questions and, man, people could point out the place for the most part. And so what happened is she built a church or had a church built. Now, Bethlehem, we have all kinds of, of things we do in Christmas plays and pageants that they're not exactly biblical. They help us tell the story a little bit. And so I'm not here to burst anybody's bubble. But, but the reality of, of where Jesus was born is he was born in a, in a grotto or a cave. I mean, in, in that part of the world, there are just thousands of lime, it's limestone and, and the hills are limestone and, and it's, it's easy sometimes to dig a, a cave out or they just occur naturally and so he, he was born 
in a, in a grotto or a cave, whatever you want to call it. And, and probably most people very often would, would build their homes next to a cave like that, and they would stable their, their uh, sheep or their donkeys or their cattle in those things at night for protection. But there's a particular cave that this church is built over, and there's pretty good evidence that, that it's the place. Uh, in, in one of the early, early church fathers, literally about 100 years after Jesus lived, writes about it. His name is Justin Martyr, and he, was a Pal- he lived in Palestine, and he writes about it. Uh, there's a apocryphal book, and there are a lot, were a lot of books written that were purported to be Scripture, and this is one of them that was, but it wasn't Scripture. It was called the, the Proto-Evangelum, the first, the first Gospel of James, is literally. And it talks about this particular cave. And then in, in the second century, another church father called Origen, uh, he makes it clear in his writings that when he went to Bethlehem, this is where they pointed out. So there was a tradition that, that began from that night, that this is the place. Now, I might get a little choked up, okay? Because uh, I'm just going to tell you, when you go to places like this, it just gets all over you, okay? I've had the opportunity to go to Bethlehem and to stand in that cave two times. One in, in 1996, and, and I remember as we, we went into the church of the Holy Sepulchre, I mean, the Church of the Nativity. You go down the steps and, and, and all that, and it was, it was fairly easy to get to. And I just remember the emotions that washed over me. Well, a couple of three weeks ago, got to do it again. This time is a little different, and, and I want you to understand a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East as, as well today. But uh, you, you, today, Bethlehem is a part of the Palestinian territory. And to get to Bethlehem, you have to go through a wall. Now, we're going to have some pictures if, if all works out. Uh, I don't know if you can see it, but there's two gentlemen standing there, and they both have guns, big guns, okay, with big clips on them. And we're in a tour bus, and I didn't get out of the bus to ask them to pose. I just snapped it as we passed through. But the, Israel, several years ago, built a wall. Uh, they were continually being uh, attacked by uh, terrorist bombers that would come in. And, I mean, if you see the terrain, it, it's not a lot different than, than, than some of the borders that, that our country has. But they decided they were tired of that. They were going to put a stop to it. The world screamed and yelled, but they built a wall. And so you can kind of see the wall up behind these gentlemen. We've got another picture here that I'm, I'm going to show. And just like on most walls, they, there's graffiti all over it and, and, and pictures of, of young men that, that have been killed and different things like that. And then there's one more picture I want you to see. Uh, there's a guard tower, and in that guard tower there are men with guns, okay? And they're serious, and they don't play. And so to get to Bethlehem, you have to, you have to go out of what would be called the nation of Israel, and into the Palestinian territory. It's, it's fairly easy, but it is a little unnerving, okay? I mean, it is a little unnerving. But once you get there, and you pass through it, uh, their main way to support themselves is tourism. And so the, the people that live in, in Bethlehem, there are, uh, there are Palestinians there, there are Arabs there, there are Arab Christians there. I mean, at one time, Bethlehem had the most uh, Christian, the largest Christian population in, in Israel. Uh, that's changed a little bit because it's, it's hard for them to work and to get back and forth because they have to cross the wall and all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm not going to get into all the, that, but some of you may remember the church in the nativity was in the news in 2002 when uh, a group of Palestinian terrorists kind of holed up in the church. And, and for 39 days, they, they had a siege. The, these uh, terrorists believed that the Israeli army would not attack them in, in a holy spot. And uh, that worked for 39 days, and eventually they did uh, attack. And, and there was several of them killed and, and, uh, and that. But you go into this church, and I, I had a picture. I didn't bring this, but literally the doorway is about this tall. And the reason is, is, is Bethlehem has been fought over for 2,000 years. Uh, it's been fought over by the Crusaders, the Jews, and the, um, the Muslims, the Ottoman Turks, the, all those groups that have swept into power. And when the Muslims took over in the Middle Ages, they stabled their horses in the church. 
the church has been destroyed several times. The last time that the, the Ottoman Turks came through, uh, they were going to they were destroying all the churches. And but they saw some carvings of of the the Magi, and they left it because the Magi were were considered Persian, were considered uh, a part of their family tree and so they left it but it's an interesting place and you go into you go into this church and it's there are uh, i'm trying to think of what they call pillars big huge pillars uh, a double row down either side and it's dark and and there's been a bazillion candles burned in there so i mean you know it's it's got a, an aroma that you, you you can't miss there are two and i don't have i didn't write all this down because i didn't intend to get into all this but there there are two churches uh, two different religious groups that kind of oversee this and and the altar area is kind of split down the middle and this group takes care of this group and this group takes care of this group and but as you kind of bear to your right there's some steps and you kind of descend down into what's the cave now you can't see the limestone or anything but you go down and then all of a sudden you're in that cave and there's there's two spots in that cave one is the the place where jesus was born the other is the manger in which his mother laid him. The manger is a stone feeding trough. Everything's overlaid with marble, okay? So you, you, you can't actually see it. But there's a, there's a star where Jesus was born. And I'm, I'm just telling you, put your hand on that. Now, was Jesus born right there where that star is? I don't know. But he was probably born in that cave. And all of a sudden, all those stories that you've heard, all those verses that you've read, all of a sudden, that faith that you have becomes sight. It becomes real. It's a neat, neat, neat experience. It's just, I was overcome with emotions because that's where Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. That's where she laid him in the manger. That's where the shepherds came to worship. It was outside on those hillsides, and you can still see the hillsides. They hadn't changed a bit. That's where the angels appeared in the skies, and the shepherds heard the, 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 the declaration that the king of glory had come, and, and they made their way there. That's where God became flesh. And I, I don't know, but to me, one, one picture is worth a thousand words. Okay, I, I, can, I can look at this picture, and I, I'm transported back there in just a moment. Because, folks, this book is real. This is not a fairy tale. These are not mythical stories. These are not stories that we read at night when the world's upside down to, to give us peace and calm. This is real. This is history. His story. And Bethlehem is a real place. And one of the things I want to do today is I, I just want to walk through Scripture and look at Bethlehem. And I've got a reason, okay? Now, it may get a little laborious in a minute. You may wonder, where in the world, Nelson, are you going? But if you'll hang with me till the end... God has been working in Bethlehem for thousands and thousands of years. And he was doing it for a reason. And I, just, I want to walk through it a little bit. It's a hot spot, okay? It really is. Even today, it's a hot spot. There's an argument all the time between the Arabs and between the Christians and between uh, the Muslims, between the Jews. I mean, it's, it's just argued over, okay? It's been fought over, as I've mentioned. There have been war after war after war. Every conquering group would come by there. They either built it up or tore it down. Why? Because it's a significant place. It has meaning. And God worked for thousands of years to instill that meaning there. But I want to show you how significant the word Bethlehem is and, and how the events that happened there in the Old Testament point like a road sign to that night when Jesus was born. See, I don't believe God does anything without a lot of preparation first. Because God never fails. God prepares. And then He acts. And Bethlehem is, is a place like that. God chose in eternity past to put some signposts for people that would point them to a time when His Son would come so that they would not miss it. Now, he's given us signposts that point back to this same event. I mean, that's what we do at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. God's done that so that we will not forget. Now, I want you to realize that if God would do that so that his son could be born, I want to ask you a question. Cannot he take care of every situation and circumstance in our lives? Do you not believe he is not working behind the scenes 
preparing and, and getting things into position so that you or I can do what we need to do. Folks, we can trust God. We can trust Him. And I just want to show you, you know, when it comes to just a little town in the middle of honestly nowhere, okay? It doesn't look a lot different. It's, there's probably a few more buildings today and, and a little bit of modernization, but it probably doesn't look a lot different except for size than what it looked like when Jesus was there. The first time we see Bethlehem, we find it in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 16 through 20, I'm just going to read this. But Jacob and his family, are they're traveling. They're nomads. God's brought Abraham, his grandfather, and his father Isaac. Now Jacob is traveling and, and just kind of looking for a place to settle down. And, and it's a continual movement. And it says, and they, and that's talking about Jacob and his rather large family. And if you know the story, Jacob had two wives. Actually, he had four wives. And he had a grand total of 13 children eventually. He had 12 sons and, and one daughter. But at this point, they're traveling. The last boy hadn't been born yet. And it says in, in verse 16, And they journeyed from Bethel, from the house of God. Beth is house. El means God. From the house of God, that area. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Ephrath, or Ephrath, which is another word for Bethlehem, Rachel began to give birth. And she suffered severe labor. In other words, she had difficulty in giving birth. And it came about, as when she was in severe labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. In other words, for a woman in that culture, the greatest thing that she could do was to produce a son. And so, here's Rachel. She's had one son. His name's Joseph. Now, all of a sudden, she's having a, a second son. And it came about, as her soul was departing, and then Scripture puts parentheses, therefore she died, that she named him Benoni, or Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Benoni means son of my sorrow. And Jacob didn't, I mean, he lo he'd lost Rachel. But every time he looked at, at his son, he didn't want to be reminded. Every time he said that name, he didn't want to be reminded. This, this is the son that, that when he was born, the greatest sorrow in my life took place. And so he changed the name. He, he kind of overrode the wish of his wife, and he named him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand, or son of the right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar over a grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And, and if you can find a tour guide that's brave enough, and uh, a bus driver that's foolhardy enough, they might take you to see Rachel's tomb. I've not been twice, and, and that's been a no, no way, no way Jose every time I've been, so... We didn't get to see Rachel's tomb. But Rachel, was, she was the love of Jacob's life. But as she was giving birth to her second son, she died. And she was buried near Bethlehem. Now, as I mentioned, there was a little disagreement over the names of the boy. And Jacob won out. But in the Bible, names are very, very, very important. They have meaning. They, don't, they're not like, they were not like us. They don't just attach names to children. They gave names, and it was almost a prophetic declaration of, of what these children would be or the situation that these children came into the world uh, that surrounded them. They, they, were, they were meaningful. And she, she wants to name the, the, the child Benoni, which means son of my sorrows. But it's interesting. With the birth of these, this baby and the two names, there's a foreshadowing that takes place here of another baby that will be born in Bethlehem. I want you just to think about this for just a minute. Benoni means son of my sorrow. And that really foreshadows what Mary would feel thousands of years later when her son, the baby that she had birthed in Bethlehem, was beaten and crucified. He would be the son of her sorrow. She would, she would sorrow. Her heart was broken as she watched her son die. She was Mary's Benoni. But she was God the Father's son of the right hand. You see, the right hand was, was the symbol of power in Scripture. And Jesus was the right hand of God. He was the power of God unto salvation. And so, even in this, in this Old Testament story, you can see God pointing to something. Now, it's faint, granted. 
But you know what? If, if, you, if you come with an open heart, you can see that. God's pointing, there will be a son born, and he will be a son of sorrow, but he will be the son of my right hand. He will be the son of power. And it's interesting when eight days after Jesus is born, Joseph and Mary travel the five miles up to Jerusalem. In, in Jewish law, they were required to, to go to the temple. And they were required to circumcise their son. And because he was the firstborn son, they had to offer him. He, he belonged to the Lord. And so they had to offer a sacrifice. Uh, it could be a lamb or it could be turtle doves. We know that they took doves, which tells us that Mary and Joseph were very, very poor. They could not afford a lamb. And so they go up to the temple, and as they're getting into that temple complex, getting to where the priest would do the circumcision, an old man runs up to him. His name is Simeon. And Simeon, to me, is one of the most interesting uh, characters in the New Testament. Simeon, the Holy Spirit had promised Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah of Israel. And I, I can just imagine every day he would go to the temple and he would wait. And he would wait. And he's getting older and older and older. And one day the Holy Spirit says, Simeon, there he is. And he doesn't ask questions. He just runs up to this couple. Now, you, you've got to picture this. This is a young couple. They've got their, their eight-day, you know, the, they don't want to get him around everybody with germs. You know, they're, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Of course, he was born in a stable. They weren't too worried about germs. Probably not as much as we are. But they've got their baby, and, and they're headed in there. And, and all of a sudden, here comes this old guy. His, he's got a white, his hair's white, his beard's white. He's wild-eyed. He's jumping up and down, jumping with joy. And this is what he says. And Simeon blessed them, in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. I find it interesting that it doesn't say the rise and the fall, but it says the fall and the rise. And for a sign to be opposed. And then listen to what he says. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. This child will be the son of your sorrow. He will cause you sorrow in what takes place in life. A sword will pierce your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts would be revealed. Mary's heart would be pierced. It would be broken with sorrow as she watched her innocent son beaten and crucified. For a few moments, for a few days, he would be her Benoni, her son of sorrow. But man, when that stone rolled back on that tomb and, and they got there and it's empty, all of a sudden the son of sorrow becomes the son of God's right hand. You see that? Now we miss that. Because for most of us, Bethlehem is just the place where Jesus is born. But you know what? God was at work preparing the message of Bethlehem thousands of years before. It's interesting. Bethlehem is also called Ephrathah. And in Hebrew, Bethlehem is a combination of, of two words. Anytime you see Beth, B-E-T-H, at the beginning of the word, it means house of. Bethel, house of God. Bethlehem, house of. And Laham, and I don't say it correctly because it's, you know, some of that stuff in it. I just don't say it right. I, I, I just can't do it, okay? I didn't do real well in Hebrew, okay? But Laham means bread. It means the house of bread. Ephrathah is interesting. It means to bear fruit, to be fruitful, to branch off. And if you go to Bethlehem, even today, but especially in, in, the, in the Old Testament days and in Jesus' day, all around Bethlehem were the barley fields. And barley was a, a staple that they made bread with. It was an important thing. So in Jesus' day, they, they grew a great deal of barley there. But even in Old Testament times, they grew a great deal of, of bread there. It was the bread basket, in a sense, for Jerusalem. That idea of bread carries a, a really a deep mean, a meaning because in, in, in the Middle Eastern custom, bread is the staff of life. I mean, bread is the, is the primary food 
When we were there, I, I saw people with these big pans, and by big, I mean four by eight pans of bread on their heads going down the street. It's just wild. But it, there's another reference to Bethlehem. Uh, in the days of the judges, there was a couple named Elimelech, and he had a wife named Naomi. And Scripture says there was a famine in Bethlehem. In other words, in the house of bread, there was no bread in the house. That's what it means. There was a famine. It was a physical famine, but folks, it was also a spiritual famine. If you study the book of Judges, you see a cycle over and over and over. It's repeated continuously. The people of, would, would worship God, and He would bless them. They'd fall away from God, and He would discipline them. They would cry out to God. He would deliver them. They would worship God. He would bless them. And over and over and over and over. And the book of Ruth is, is set in that time period. And Elimelech and Naomi are forced to leave the bread basket, the house of bread, because there's no bread in the house. There's no food. Now, it's a big deal to leave your birthplace, the city that you've grown up in, the city that your grandfather was in, the city your great-grandfather and all your neighbors lived in. And they don't just leave and go to another place in Israel. They leave and go to another country. They go to Moab. And while they're in Moab, Elimelech dies. By the way, Elimelech means, El means God, and Melech means king. God is king. But they go to, they go to Moab. And while they're there, Elimelech dies. Now, they have two sons. Those two sons marry Moabite women. And they die. And all of a sudden you have... There's a little high place in the tile there. <laughs> all of a sudden you have Naomi, who's now a widow, and she has no sons, and the only people she has with her are her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And you know the story of Ruth, what happens... Uh, Naomi basically gives them permission to go back home, and, and Ophrah does, but, but Ruth decides to go with Naomi. And they go back to Israel. They go back to Bethlehem, back to the house of bread. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in the story because I want to get to something, but, but here's the deal. God is working this is not just the story of people that are hungry and they have to go over here to get bread. God's moving a family out and bringing a different family in. It's still the same family, but he's getting rid of some individuals and bringing some others in. He's got a plan. And so what happens is, is when they get back, they have nobody to take care of them. They didn't have any, any social services. They didn't have uh, 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 rights. I mean, if you were a widow and you didn't have a son... You were basically on your own, and now the goodness of people's heart, they could help you or not. But now God had instituted some, some laws in Moses' day. Farmers were not, they were forbidden to square cut their fields and gather everything. They had to round the corners off. And they had to leave every so often. They had to leave grain or grapes. They couldn't, they couldn't reap everything. They couldn't clean it. They had to leave some. And then what would happen is the, the widows and the poor had to get up and get the baskets and go out in the field and gather. In other words, Jesus said, if you, I mean, Paul said, if you want work, you shouldn't eat. Well, even in the system there, in God's system, they had to get up and work. And so Naomi was, was too old. And so she sent Ruth. And Ruth began to gather. She, she garnered the eye of a, of a landowner. His name was Boaz. And Boaz saw her, her, her work ethic, but he also saw her, her moral ethics. And to be honest with you, he fell in love. Okay? Make a long story short, eventually, Boaz and Ruth get married. Now, Boaz just happens to be a cousin of Elimelech. And in Jewish customs and biblical customs, there was a there was a a clause. It's called a Levirate marriage or Levirate marriage. And what would happen is, if you were a cousin or a brother 
uh, of someone who had died, if you were a brother, you were the closest relative. And the closest relative had the right to redeem the property that that the dead relative had. But to do that, you had to marry the wife of your brother or your cousin or whomever it was and raise up a son and give them the dead person's name. That's called the kinsman redeemer. Now, I ain't got a long time this morning, but Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Okay? And so Boaz is not the closest. He's, the, he's almost the closest. But the other guy says, hey, can't do it. You're welcome to it. And so Boaz marries Ruth. And they have a son. Now that son, according to Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, so they named him Obed. Now I want you to listen real close. They named him Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now you kind of see where I'm going? God's moved a whole family to Moab, and he's kind of dealt with that family, brought them back. What's he doing? He's preparing a family. Now, out of this family is going to come the, the greatest king of Israel, David. But there's another king coming. His name is Jesus. If you read the, the story, the Christmas story, you'll find that Jesus is the son of David. Bethlehem became known as, as the royal city. It became known as, as, as the hometown. That was where David lived. That was where his family lived. It was the city of kings. And on this little, in this little town on the hillsides, David watched the sheep. Later in, in Jesus' day, this is where they raised the sheep that they used in the temple sacrifices. And what's one of Jesus' names? He's the Lamb of God. He was born in Bethlehem, exactly where they raised the temple sacrifices, and he became the sacrifice. It was the city where David was anointed king. Uh, you remember the story of how Samuel comes, and he tells Jesse, I want, I want to see you boys. And so Jesse brings all of his boys in, except for David. David's the last one. He's the baby. He's out taking care of the sheep. And you know the story that uh, Samuel looks at all of them, and... Uh, None of them fit the bill. And he tells Jesse, do you have any more sons? Yeah, we'll bring him in. And so 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 and 13 says, So he, Jesse sent and brought David in. Now, David was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David that, from that day forward. You know what? God's working in this little town that's out of the way. He's quietly preparing the way for the king to come. God promised David that he would never lack a man or a son, a grandson, to sit on his throne. And ultimately, Jesus fulfills that promise because Jesus is the king. And if you study, he's, he's called the son of David. That's one reason why in the Christmas story, Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth. You remember the story in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 and 5? There's a decree that goes out from, from Caesar Augustus. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Serenius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, which is in the north, about 70 or so miles, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and the lineage or the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Okay, they're living in Nazareth. And trust me, it's a long, hard journey for a man. It's almost an impossible journey for a young woman that's pregnant. And yet Joseph and Mary have to get up and they have to leave Nazareth and they have to go to the city of his fathers. They have to go to his home, to his hometown where his tribe lives, in other words. What's the big deal? Well, God is, is moving the pieces again. It, it, it's because that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Nelson, where do you get that at? 
Well, it lies in prophecy. You see, God never does anything without letting his prophets know what he's doing. And it's interesting that 700 years before Jesus is born on that night, a prophet named Micah says this. In Micah 5, 2, he says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, God is saying, is I, there, there's going to be a, a prince born in you, and he's eternal. Although he will be born on that night, he doesn't begin there. His beginnings are from eternity. In other words, he has no beginnings. That's hidden in a little bitty book in what's called the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament in a verse. But you know what? That verse was well known by the Jews. They knew the verse. If you don't think so, look at the life of Jesus it wasn't wasted on them. In John chapter 7, verse 40 and 42, Jesus is, is at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's been teaching, and there's a multitude following him. And this is what it says. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. In other words, Moses spoke, God told Moses, there will be one who comes after you who will be an even greater prophet than you, the prophet. There will be someone like that. So they're saying, well, this is the prophet. This is, the, this is the one. The others were saying, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Still others were saying, listen to this. Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Now they all knew where Jesus lived. Okay, he was a Galilean. He spoke with a Galilean uh, dialect. And then they say this. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? In other words, he's, he's from the family of David and from Bethlehem. From the village where David was from. You know what the problem here is? That nobody stopped to ask Jesus where he was born. They just assumed he was born in Nazareth, in Galilee. Now, I don't have to tell you what happens when you assume. But in assuming, they missed the Messiah who was standing in their very midst. You remember the, the physical famine that we talked about a few minutes ago in, in Limelech and, and Naomi's day? There was also a, a spiritual famine in their day. And that spiritual famine continued right into Jesus' day. Here was the bread of life standing before them, born in the house of bread. And they didn't even recognize him. They missed him. This is, this is the bread of life that the angels declared on those mountaintops. This is the, the bread of life that the shepherds missed. I mean, that the shepherd witnessed. And everyone else, though, missed it. Now, 30 or so years after he was born, Jesus declares it in John chapter 6, verse 35. This is what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see the, the bread motif, the, the Bethlehem, the, the bread? It's all there. God's woven it into a beautiful rug. Two things, and I'm done, okay? God's working through a geographical place to, de to declare the message of grace. Bethlehem, the house of bread. God orchestrates everything to get just the right family in position. He announces hundreds of years. He sends out invitations, okay, to the birthday. I mean, they're not having a shower, but in a sense they are. He sent shower invitations out 700 years ahead of time. If you go RSVP, that's plenty of time, don't you think? I mean, you can set something up on your calendar. Nothing's just going to come up. He announces it over and over and over. And then on the night that, that Jesus is born... In that stable, in that cave, I mean, he, doesn't, he just doesn't send a text. I mean, he lights the sky up with a heavenly chorus, and they announce it. And then 30 years or so later, boom, here stands the very Messiah in their midst, declaring that he's the bread of life come down out of heaven. Here's the bread of life born in the house of bread in the city of David 
his lineage on both sides, his stepfather Joseph and his mother Mary, are both from the house of David. I mean, he's got blue blood. And folks, they missed it. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. But then he says something else. He says, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. It's interesting. He's not just going to give them bread to eat. He's going to give them water to drink. And this was something Jesus talked about over and over and over. If you remember with the Samaritan woman at the well, in John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks this water, in other words, this water that comes out of this well, shall thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Later, Jesus is going to declare this again. And we read a few minutes ago about Jesus, uh, the, the argument over who Jesus was. Well, the reason they were arguing is because of this. In John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, it's, it's the eighth day of the Feast of Booths. And for seven days previous, the priest, the high priest, had sent someone down to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He had sent someone to sent, okay? Don't miss it. To get a pitcher of water. They would take a pitcher, and they would fill it with water from the pool of Siloam. They would bring it back, they would pour it out, and they would declare... With joy shall you draw water out of the well of salvation. They've been doing this for, a hundred, for hundreds of years. Every time they had the Feast of Tabernacle, for seven days, every day someone would go and get a, a jug of water. They'd come back, pour it out, and make that declaration. And so it's the holy day, it's the, it's the eighth day, and all of a sudden, at the time when they'd sent someone down for the previous seven days, Jesus stands up, and this is what he says in John chapter 7, verse 37 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus is, is declaring to me, what you're doing what you've done the last seven days and what you've done for the last few hundred years, every year, here I am. Here's the water of life. Now, I believe this story has an Old Testament picture. If you don't think so, it's okay. But I think it does. There's a story told almost 940 years earlier in the days of King David. David has left Jerusalem. He's going to war with the Philistines. The Philistines just happened to be camped out around where? Where do you think? Bethlehem. I mean, they're, they're covered the hillsides up. And David, is he's, he's, he's the king. He has all that responsibility, and he's daydreaming. And you know what he says? Man, I would love to have a drink of water from the well that's in Bethlehem. Now, he's he just daydreaming. You, 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 how many of you have done that? Man, I'd love to have a steak dinner. I'd love to have a cold cocoa or a Diet Mountain Dew or, or whatever. That's what he's doing. But three of his soldiers hear him. In fact, the Bible calls him, he, David has 30 mighty men. These are the mightiest of the mighty men. I mean, these guys are Commando, G.I. Joe, Bruce Willis, Whatever, Schwarzenegger, whatever you want to call it. These guys are the real deal. And, and you, you come across in, 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 in uh, Second Chronicles some exploits that these guys do. But I don't believe God just puts them in there for no reason. I believe He put them in there to point us to something. And so, Joab and Yashabim and Eleazar decide to go and fulfill the king's dream. Now this is three guys. Okay, they're not in M1 tanks, they're not in jet fighters, they're on foot with a spear and a sword, whatever they can carry, okay? And the Philistine army surrounded Bethlehem. Listen to what Second Chronicles 11, verse 18 and 19 says. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines. In other words, they fought their way in. 
And when they got through the lines, they drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate. Now, it doesn't say this, but I can assure you this happened. They had to fight their way back out. And they took it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who went at risk of their lives? For at risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. David offered their sacrifice as a sacrifice. He poured it out as a drink offering. Jesus is standing and he's saying, I am the water of life. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Jesus becomes the drink offering. He's poured out in just a few days after he makes this statement. Now, Nelson, why in the world have you told us all this stuff, and how does all this stuff mesh together? Okay? I'm going to see if, if just in a minute or two I can, I can show you what I'm talking about. Folks, if God would go to such details so that the people that he loved, which is the world. I mean, that's what it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Not just the Jews, not just the Christians, but the Muslims and the Arabs and everybody else. If God loved us enough to go to all this trouble so that we would recognize Jesus when he's manifested, do you not think he will take care of you? I'm serious. I don't know. He doesn't seem to be doing a very good job right now. Folks, I, I would disagree with you. God's doing a perfect job. God has a plan. You've heard me say this over and over and over, and until I draw my last breath, I guess I will say this. I said it yesterday to a men's group. But God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And if God would go to those extremes so that we wouldn't miss Jesus, so that the people of Jesus' day wouldn't miss him, and every group that has followed, to what extremes would he not go to demonstrate his love for us? Now, I know some will say, well, you know, he's demonstrated it on the cross. Yes, he has. But you know what? He will do whatever it takes to apply that personally in your life and my life. Why in the world would he pick a, a, a town in the middle of nowhere? Why not Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem's the, the center of the country. Why, not, why Bethlehem? Because God's sending a message. House of bread. I'm going to send the bread of life to the house of bread. Folks, here's the truth. If he did it for Jesus, he'll, he'll do it for you. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what you're struggling with, but I'll tell you this, we're all struggling with something. All of us. That's every person in here. We all got issues and circumstances and things are not going like we planned that we have no control over, okay? Some of the things we do, we, we make some different choices and things could change. But there are some things that all of us struggle with that we have absolutely no control over. But you know what? The God who chose Bethlehem and worked all those things out, has control over everything. He has all power. He is omnipotent. He, he knows everything. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow, what happened yesterday, and what will happen 700 years from now if the Lord tarries. He is in, he's large and in charge, okay? I, that's the only way I know to put it. He is in control. What that says to me, and I hope it, communicates to you is that you know what he loves us i don't know why i look at myself and i say god why in the world? why would you do love me but folks he does he loves us he loves us enough to send his son to do all of get everything in place so his son comes follows the plan follows the step so that we can't miss it there's a verse and it comes out, of, it's, it's found in, in John chapter 17. And I usually, I preach from the New American Standard, but several years ago, in my devotional time, I was reading the New Living Translation. And I came across John chapter 17, verse 24. 
And I don't know who this verse is for this morning. It may be for everybody in here. I hope it is. But Jesus has been praying, and he's, he's prayed that there'll be unity, and he's prayed that, that there'll be one, that we'll be one as he's one. He's prayed for his disciples. I mean, these are, this is the last recorded prayer we have before he is crucified. And in John chapter 17, verse 24, this is what Jesus, I'm going to read the latter part of it, okay? I don't, okay, that's okay. I'm just going to read the very last part. This is what it says in, in the New Living Translation. Then the world will know that you sent me. Father, you sent me. And will understand. They will know that you sent me and they will understand that you love them as much as you love me. Let me say that again. They will understand that you, God the Father, love them, the world. By the way, that's every one of us everyone in this room. God loves us. God loves you. You. Right where you're at. Whether it's good times or bad, whether it's you're as close as you can be to Him or as far away as you can get, God loves you as much as He loves Jesus. Now, I could spend the rest of my ministry trying to explain what that means. But this is what it means. God loves us. God loves you. God loves me as much as He loves Jesus. That's why there's a Bethlehem. That's why God goes to all that trouble to get everything in place, to get this family in, that family out, this child name, that child name. These guys go for water, bring back water. Jesus stands up, declares this and this and this and this. He did that so that we would understand that He loves us. I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. You're probably stressed out. Don't know how you're going to make the finances stretch this month. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody in your family that's sick. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe it's a, a, a child or, or, or something like that. But folks, the message of Christmas is really simple. We had no hope. And God sent hope through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the message of Christmas. Why? So that they would know you love them as much as you love me. Let's pray.